I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The thing that I'm most thankful for with Disney's renewal of Star Wars isn't that I can go to Kroger and see a pack of frozen Pillsbury cookies with Darth Vader's face all over them. Or that I can go over a few aisles down into the uh, cookingware section and find a spatula with R2-D2's likeness printed onto the plastic. It's not any of that crap. It's that we can now all finally laugh at how bad that prequel trilogy truly was. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Want something more in-depth than a sarcastic, pretentious, 140-character review of your favorite movie? Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com. Welcome in once again, friends, to the Stream Police Podcast, brought to you by OverdueReview.com. I'm Clint Davis, movies and TV editor over there at the website. A little bit later on in the show, we'll be hearing from our music editor, Andy Sedlak, and uh, what tunes he's got for you this week to check out streaming online. And I am the one that's going to talk to you about the movies that are streaming on Netflix, usually on uh, Amazon, the shows that are on Hulu, and the movies that are in theaters. This week is going to be very, very film-heavy because we are in movie awards season, also known as... It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes, it's my favorite time of the year, friends. Not because of the snow falling from the sky, the colorful lights everywhere the uh, religious holiday of your choosing that happens in the winter. Not because of any of that garbage. It's because of all the great movies that are in theaters every single week. Every week. I mean, I'm looking at my schedule. My wife made out a list the other day when she was bored of like the, the release dates of all the movies over the next two months leading up to the Oscars that are coming out. And we're just hoping that we will be able to see all of them in our little hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. So, uh, you know, it's growing, though. So we get a lot of the good ones. We, we we pretty much get all the big, all the good ones. But you have to usually act fast. You have to, like, go see them within a week because usually they're not around too long. Uh, anyways, let's go ahead and get rolling here on the stream, Police. Episode 17, can you believe it, friends? We're... Uh, Coming up on a new year, we're going to uh, be talking here in the next few weeks about some of the folks we lost over the last year and looking ahead to next year. But let's stay in the now right this minute. First off, let me go ahead and light my stogie 
of the week here. I've got uh, once again. I'm I'm not stogieing. I'm not going with a full on stogie this week. I'm going with a small Jarum Black clove cigar, uh, cigar. Let me let me give that a light. Can't lose with that, man. Jarum Black, very good stuff. Get it at your local tobacco retailer. Uh, <laughs> I swear I don't get paid for those. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome into the show, though. Let, let me go ahead and and kind of preface the show just by saying I know I said we're going to stick in the now, but let me just get this one note out here. By the next time we speak here on the Stream Police podcast, movie history will be made because another Star Wars film will have come out, and it has been a long time coming. As anyone who's a fan of the series, which it seems like pretty much everyone is a Star Wars, like there's really not that many people that aren't Star Wars fans. Like it's really, you get looked at really weird, weirdly when, when someone says that they haven't seen like any Star Wars movies, don't you just like kind of react to them and just like, I don't know if it's hostile, but it's just like, seriously? I mean, how how could you not have over the this many years and as many of the cultural references that have been made to Star Wars over the years and like every movie and TV show ever created so I have to say, though, the thing that I'm most thankful for with Disney's renewal of Star Wars isn't that I can go to Kroger and see a pack of frozen Pillsbury cookies with Darth Vader's face all over them, or that I can go over a few aisles down into the uh, cookingware section and find a spatula with R2-D2's likeness printed onto the plastic. It's not any of that crap. It's that we can now all finally laugh at how bad that prequel trilogy truly was. Binks, you, sir, haven't a live play with this and his Uh-huh. If you listen to this show, if you know me at all, or you've, you've read the website, you'll know that I'm not someone who likes to buy into popular opinion. On movies or music. In fact, I can't stand it. The more I hear about how great a movie is, how great a TV show is, usually the less I want to see it. And the more I hear about how bad one is, it doesn't make me want to go see it more, but it does make me interested in knowing why people hate it so much. And if they're just full of crap and they just heard somebody else say that it was bad, so they went and saw it and they were like, yeah, it is bad, but maybe they actually liked it, but they didn't want to say that because, you know... They didn't want to get looked at funny. We've talked about that kind of thing on this show before. Now, as I said, I'm not someone who buys into popular opinion on movies or music. I have to go see something with an open mind. Usually I don't read what other people say about movies and music because of that. I don't want to have anything in my head uh, before I go into something. I don't read reviews, like, ever of other movies. I just I don't do it just because I don't want to have anything else in my head when I go to sit down to watch it. So I once wrote a review on the website for Godfather 3. I, I watched the film, wrote a review on it. And I concluded in the, by saying that that movie's really not a terrible movie. You know, everybody dogs on it all the time, mostly because of the quality of the first two, and then there is definitely a drop off. But it's not a terrible movie. You know, it's a pretty decent film, and there's a lot of great scenes in it. But Star Wars episodes one to three, everyone says they blow ass, and they are terrible. They're horrible. There's no. Like, I can't come out any other way. I've watched all the, the prequels numerous times, not as many times as I've seen the older ones, obviously, I think, as most of us uh, have. But I've seen them all several times, and they just, it's like they get worse every time I watch them. I don't know. The entire trilogy, prequel trilogy, nearly nine hours of film, 
basically existed for one single scene to be shown. Like we went to those those movies, those three movies, to watch one freaking scene, and it was at the end of the third one when Anakin Skywalker truly becomes Darth Vader. That's the whole. That's the whole reason the trilogy was made. That was it. Let's let's let's. We didn't care about him racing pods when he was a kid and falling in love with Natalie Portman. We didn't give a shit about that. We wanted to see him turn into Darth Vader and choke somebody with the Force. I mean, that's that. That was it. That was all it was about. So that was like 10 minutes of nine hours. That was actually pretty awesome. But for 10 years since the last Star Wars movie came out, Star Wars fans have had to face a sad truth. And that was that those were the final Star Wars films they'd ever see. And we thought for sure that was it. Lucas was done. That's all. They're not going to go to episode. Why would they do an episode seven? They're just going to. They, they did the prequels. They're wrapping it up. They got the Clone Wars shows, whatever. That's the only new Star Wars stuff we're going to get. Like that was the sad truth about those prequels, and it made them even more bitter to watch. Thankfully, though, now we can all just laugh them off and move on into a far better galaxy. Just move on. We can just laugh at them and remember how crappy they really were and uh, get going on Episodes 7, 8, 9, and all the spinoff films as well, and who knows where they're going to go from there. I think we'll all be dead, friends, uh, before they are done making Star Wars movies. So no pressure, J.J. Abrams, but... Um, I, I, I truly am grateful for these new movies just because it kind of lightens the, the load a little bit that was on those prequels. And, oh, my God, what a what a bad load it was, friends. What a bad one. I'm feeling very, like, renewed because in the last couple of weeks since we spoke, I've seen a lot of great movies in the last two weeks. We're, like I said, we're at that time of the year. It's kind of unfair, and it kind of sucks when you're trying to review movies because – you sound like you're just you, you sound like a moron you're just excited about all these like every movie's good so you're just giving good reviews to everything so it, it kind of makes you seem stupid like you'll read if you look at uh you know a, a movie a film review website that's reviewing new movies not like ours that reviews old movies but you'll just see it's like every movie it's like four stars four stars five stars three and a half stars four stars like nothing's gonna go below like three and a half stars at this time of year it's just they're just not because the movies are really good right now. This is when all the good films come out. So, as I said, as a critic, it makes you look kind of stupid. But really, it's not your fault. It's just because this is how they stagger them. They put all the good movies out in November, from November to March. And then there's this wasteland of horrible films from, like, March to June. And then you get a couple summer movies that are good, but usually they all suck, too. And it's, like, no good movies. So, all these bad movies and then good movies, it's like they, they don't know how to sprinkle them in throughout the year. It's just a bunch of good ones at once. But I, I've so my wife and I go to the movies a lot at this time of year. We go a few times every weekend. And as I said before, it does get old kind of beaming about movies that everyone else has already beamed about online. But sometimes you just have to. And that's what I'm going to do with this next movie. I talked a few weeks ago about Steve Jobs, Danny Boyle's film, and said that that was my favorite movie of the year. It was, but it has now been uh, surpassed. By another film I saw, directed by Tom McCarthy, written by Tom McCarthy and Josh Singer, Spotlight is now my favorite movie of 2015. Who knows if it's going to get replaced, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what, this was a perfect film, and it's going to take a lot of work to get something past Spotlight uh, in my eyes for this year. This was this blew me away, and not just because I'm a reporter in my day job, but it's just a fantastic movie. And let's let, let me tell you why 
It is such a fantastic movie. This one stars Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Leah Schreiber, uh, Brian Darcy James, and several other people, including John Slattery and Stanley Tucci. It's got a great ensemble cast, and everyone is used well, and everyone pulls their weight. And that is a, God, that's a beautiful thing when you get a huge cast like that, and everyone gets to play a real character, and everyone, you get a sense of like all, like no one was sold short, I didn't feel like. In this movie, as far as those parts went, they're all like juicy. They're all good parts. It's kind of one of those scripts that, as an actor, you read and you're just like, "Oh man, this is unbelievable." I mean, this is the kind of movie I want to be in. And it makes sense that Tom McCarthy is an actor himself in his day job, and he's the one that writes and directs this movie. He's still relatively new on the block. His move, big movie before this was Win Win with Paul Giamatti, which I thought was boring. Uh, just a, it was like a boring, just typical kind of indie flick for me. But um, you may remember McCarthy as the guy who played uh, the reporter in The Wire's final season, the guy, Scott Templeton, who was making up all the stories. So he was like the most, the most unethical journalist of all time in The Wire, Tom McCarthy was. And he goes on to make this movie about really the most ethical journalist I've ever seen. I mean, pillars of what this business is about without beating you over the head with it. So Spotlight, if you haven't heard of this one, it's about the uh, team. They're called the Spotlight Team. They're a team of investigative reporters, small group of uh, three reporters and one editor. The editor is played by Michael Keaton. The reporters on the team are played by Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, and Brian Darcy James. Working at the Boston Globe in the early 2000s, in 2000, 2001 is when this movie takes place. And they're the ones that that blew open the uh, sex abuse scandal um, from the Catholic Church, where they were just moving priests around from church to church, town to town, without ever like anyone facing penalties, and everyone was covering it up. These guys blew that open in Boston, a very big Catholic town. And, uh, of course, during a the movie, they're feeling the pressure from the community about doing this story on such a pillar of the Boston community, which would be the Catholic Church. So you, you've probably heard great things about this movie if you have heard about Spotlight. I'm just going to tell you right now, believe any of the hype that you have heard about this because the hype is real. This is a great film. They nailed my favorite thing about this. I talked a few weeks ago about journalism movies and especially about female reporters and how they're portrayed in movies and how it's they're they're portrayed stereotypically and just they're not done well. And journalism is very rarely ever done well in movies. Um, they just they always want to they always want to preach about it, about how great it is, about how important it is, about how the old days were better than these days. I mean, just tons of things that always get done in journalism movies that are just so tired, so worn out. And this one did not do any of that. They nailed the day-to-day grind that is this job. It's just day-to-day. I mean, the the characters in this movie are like fact-checking. Like There are whole scenes. They're fact-checking names of priests in like directories and old books down in the dusty library. And it sounds boring as shit, but it's not. The way they do it is so good. The scenes just flow together so well. And we don't stick on anything for too long uh, to where it gets boring. I mean, it, but they show the entire day-to-day. I mean, making calls, getting doors slammed in your face, um, you know, ta- talking to people that don't want to be spoken to, um, you know, going to court, trying to find public record documents. I mean, it's just one of those things. It shows the day-to-day. They're looking at spreadsheets. I mean, they're just doing all this stuff that seems boring, but it's so inspiring in the movie. And they avoided turning their characters into saints and heroes, which is another thing that movies about reporters always do. They always turn them into, like, saints. Like, these are the last freedom fighters in the United States. And it's always just so over-the-top and insulting, I feel like, to anybody in the business. But 
or to anybody who's not in the business, really, is who it's insulting to. This one's not like that. These are great. I mean, these could be construed as hero characters. They're doing great work. But they're doing great work in the same way that police are doing great work on the street every day. They're doing great work in the same way that firefighters are doing great work every day. Not necessarily every blaze is in a five uh, alarm, you know, we got to rush in through the, the burning door and the, the building's falling down and I'm carrying the baby out under my, you know, under my arm. And then, you know, the firefighter ends up dying of, and, but he's, he's hailed as a hero. I mean, it's not, that's not how it is every day when you're a firefighter. I mean, that, that happens, but it's not every day. And this movie is like more about what it really is like every day to be a journalist and they're doing great things, but it's a lot of small work that leads up to those great things. It's not these big uh, Waterloo stands. I mean, they're just, they're just taking it day to day until they get that final story done. It's just one of those rare journalism movies that doesn't grandstand about the job, and I think that's what I really appreciated about it so much. The ensemble, as I said, is perfect, perfectly used. Stanley Tucci is so good, one of my favorite performances he's ever done, and he's always reliable. Um, I, I mean, hell, he was even good in The Lonely, The, the, <laughs> the, the Lovely Bones. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the Lovely Bones. He was the only good part of that entire <laughs> god-awful movie. It was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But Tucci was good in that. John Slattery from Mad Men, very good in this as well. Um, and, and it just, I, I, what I really appreciate, appreciated about Spotlight, excuse me, is that the movie didn't take shortcuts to get its points across. It, it, it did really go the long way in in telling you this story. And again, I think I that might make it sound boring, but it's not. It's not a long overly long movie. It's not a, a boring movie at all. I was engrossed the entire time. It just offers a fresh take really on like corruption. And when you have a culture where the values are unquestioned, the Catholic Church in Boston is unquestioned. I mean, Boston in a lot of ways is like a small town versus a big city, which it really is a big city, but it's like it's a small town. If you've seen any of the great Boston films, you know that. If you've seen uh, Mystic River or if you've seen Gone Baby Gone or if you've seen The Departed, you know that it's like a small town. Everybody knows everybody and everybody's in everyone's business. Um, and, and that's one of the things that really causes problems for these guys. And it takes outsiders coming in to really set this off. I mean, the guy who really sets the entire thing off is Liev Schreiber, who plays the the new editor of the Boston Globe. He's this Jewish cat from Miami, Florida, who's never even been to Boston. Might have been there, but never lived there, never spent any time there. Doesn't know any, doesn't know jack about the city except for the things that all outsiders know. But comes in, he's the editor of the paper. So no one trusts him. No one likes him. And this is the point where the movie could have been, well, he's the bad guy. He's the boss. He's the heavy. But it's not like that at all. He ends up basically becoming the the best friend in the movie, the guy who really is after the truth. And I, I just, I, I loved Spotlight. Thought it was fantastic. My favorite movie so far this year. Um, sorry, Steve Jobs. It just, it, it passed you up by a little bit, but it's, it's, a wonderful movie. I, I can't recommend going to see Spotlight anymore, especially if you're a reporter, you ever worked as a journalist, you have to see. This is a must-see movie, I'm telling you. It's better than all the President's Men because it doesn't have all that garbage about them being tailed around, guys in trench coats going to kill them. I mean, it's not a thriller. This is just a straight day-to-day procedural drama. It's a journalism procedural, and it's so well done. Couldn't recommend Spotlight more. I think that's the bigger story. The numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. That's all they do, indicate. Are you telling me that, that if we run a story with 50 pedophile priests in Boston... Mike, we'll get into the same catfight you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. 
We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. Now let me move on to one more journalism movie that I saw in the week before I saw Spotlight. This is a film called Truth, uh, directed by and written by James Vanderbilt. He's the fellow who wrote uh, one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years, Zodiac, which was directed by David Fincher. That was a guy that was a great movie. But so James Vanderbilt has written and directed this movie called Truth. This uh, stars Kate Blanchett, Robert Redford, Topher Grace, Dennis Quaid, and Stacey Keach. What a weird, and Elizabeth Moss is also in there. What a weird cast, right? So this film is about Dan Rather. And, and if you know anything about Dan Rather, Rather was one of the great newsmen of the last century. He's probably my favorite TV newsman ever. I just always liked him, always liked his style. Any interview I've ever seen with him, he just seems like a, just a cool, just southern dude who is just like a regular guy. He's not, he doesn't have a stick up his ass like a lot of news reporters do, news anchors. Um, so, so this is about Dan Rather and his, his uh, the, the story on 60 Minutes in the uh, during the 2000 election was when this was or 2004 election I'm sorry was when this was going on um, and it's about uh, the the story on 60 Minutes that looked into George W. Bush's who was the sitting president then record in the military and whether he went AWOL or if he did serve out his you know his the time he was contracted to uh, to be in the Air Force I think it was the the Air Force I can't remember which one uh, which one he was supposed to be in. But anyways, did he serve his time or did he cut and run kind of because his dad was, you know, former president and all this stuff. So that's that's what this is about. And it ended up getting fired, getting Dan Rather fired from this great career he had at CBS. And also the team that worked with him went down as well. The movie's not really about Dan Rather, though. The movie is about Mary Mapes, who's the producer. She was a 60 Minutes producer, hard-nosed, tough journalist lady, who is played by Kate Blanchett. Now, I talked specifically before, when I, I told you when when I talked about journalism movies and how they, they uh, basically do a disservice to female reporters everywhere because they've got them always, they're sleeping with their sources, they're always, uh, they're always totally unethical, they, they don't uh, usually appear very smart, they're like overly ambitious to the point where you just can't root for them, and they're just not realistic. This movie... Mary Mapes is turned into a great character in this film. Now, she's a real person, and the movie was based on her autobiography. So you might think that it's going to make her look really good, but it really doesn't. She's very three-dimensional. I thought Mary Mapes was a great movie character and really one of the best female journalists I've ever seen in a movie. And Kate Blanchett played her as well as she's played any part. I mean, she was great in this movie. But I'll tell you the thing about Truth was it didn't leave me feeling inspired like Spotlight. But again, though, this movie tells a different kind of story from Spotlight, where Spotlight was a little bit triumphant because they got this great story out that changed things really and, and, and gave a voice to a lot of victims who had been silenced. This movie is – the ecstasy is very short. Like the ecstasy from the reporters of getting their story happens about halfway through the movie. And and my wife even like said to me at that point, she's like, if only it could end right here. Like if it would have ended there, happy ending, they ride off into the sunset. Dan Rather had this great career. He's he's uh, you know a, a legendary newsman. He's going to retire on his own terms. And Mapes is you know still working in the business and all this stuff. But unfortunately, you know that's only halfway through the movie. And then they're going to go to court. Rather's going to get fired. Mapes is going to get canned, and it's it's all going to go downhill. 
So the ecstasy is very short-lived. This is more of like a tragic news story. This one, as I said, is not about the triumph of reporting, but it's more about like the tragic results of when a story can go wrong and when the research can go wrong as well, when maybe some things are fudged. And it's really, it's like a difference between TV journalism and newspaper journalism. Spotlight's all about the newspaper world. They work on this story for like over a year in that movie to get it all right, and they won't rush anything. Truth is about them doing this massive story about a guy who is a, a sitting president running back for office again. And it's a big-time story that could sway a lot of things. And basically, they have to rush to finish it because they have to get it on air on 60 Minutes uh, by the time, you know, uh, before all the NFL games come on. And it's all this stuff about about the scheduling of it, which I thought was actually pretty interesting in this movie. So, again, it kind of shows the differences in priority in the newspaper world, sometimes in the TV world. The moment of ecstasy, though, happens when, you know, a group of journalists in this movie see their story kind of unfold for an audience on TV, but it's very short-lived. Truth is much more like in the style of a paranoid thriller, like in All the President's Men. But it's not that paranoid, but it's a little bit paranoid because you're wondering the entire time in the audience whether the big, bad network executives are just out to get Mapes and Rather's team for some kind of political endgame, which is alluded to a lot in this movie. It's like, was CBS in bed with the Bush administration uh, because of Viacom and all these conflicting interests and things? So the ethics of of the people controlling the news content in this movie are really, uh, are really shaky. And that's one thing that this movie talks about a lot. Uh, but like, like I said, Blanchett is fantastic. I, I felt like Mapes was really represented well. She was fully, fully rounded, wasn't made out to be flawless, um, but she did kind of in the end feel a little bit like a martyr, uh, but not to the point where you were just like, oh, God, give me a break. Rather was more, I would say, of like a saintly figure in the movie. Uh, Robert Redford played him very well, and I, I can't believe that Robert Redford's a little bit like he's basically like the same age as Dan Rather. They don't really, he doesn't really look like him. He does sound like him a good bit, but it wasn't about that he I thought he did a good job of capturing the essence of Dan Rather and it was a good performance from uh, from Robert Redford I'm always glad to see him I mean he's just how can you not like Robert Redford but but Dan Rather himself is made into like a saintly figure in this movie and I love the guy but it does take away a little bit from the drama in the movie if I was going to classify truth as anything I'd call it a character study really of Mapes um, it's it's really about her. We get into her background as as a child, what made her have the attitude that she has, what made her into like the truth seeker that she is, um, these, this relentless reporter, what made her this person. At times, though, it does try to play like a thriller, and I feel like it doesn't work in those scenes um, at all. Now, unless you're someone who's fascinated by the world of television news, like you just love that world, it's it's very interesting to you, I'd probably skip Truth. I didn't think it was that great. Um, but, like again, as I said, if you're a huge Kate Blanchett fan, huge Robert Redford fan, or you just love the business of like television news and how they do it, give Truth, uh, skip Truth. But if you are those other things, then, then watch it. It reminded me a lot of Michael Mann's um, The Insider. But it was like not – it was like – it was like a more flawed version of The Insider. So if you like The Insider a lot, you also might like it, but it wasn't nearly as good as The Insider, but it did feel a lot like it. Mapes felt a lot like the um, the Bergman character that uh, Al Pacino played, the 60 Minutes producer as well, in The Insider. So uh, that's, that's kind of my take on truth. They're going to start an investigation. And CBS wants to appoint an independent panel to take a look at how the story is put together. And I'm going to announce it. 
tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to apologize for the story on air. Andrew asked you to apologize? He didn't ask. Dan, that's surrendered. Ever since you know, Burkett changed his story, Andrew feels that CBS can't afford the risk to his reputation. Oh, God, he knew. All right, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back on the other side and talk about a couple other films that I saw in theaters just recently that are still in theaters, a little bit more mainstream. We'll talk about the Peanuts movie and the Hunger Games uh, final film in that chapter. And what's the what's the legacy of that series going to be when the dust kind of settles here in our own Pan Am? We'll find out. Uh, let me pass it over to Andy Sedlak, though, our music editor now, find out what he's got on deck this week. Take it away, Mr. Sedlak. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm a big fan of the Michael Stanley Band. For the uninitiated, the Michael Stanley Band is a group out of Cleveland, and they were huge in the 70s and 80s, sort of always right on the fringe of national acceptance. They just never quite broke through. I'm 28, which obviously means I wasn't around for their heyday but there's a funny thing that happens with bands like this there's the initial wave of fans who experience them and love them while they were active and then there's almost a second wave of fans who grew up hearing and loving that music from their folks or other people who are still like spreading the gospel, and that's where I fit in. The story of the Michael Stanley Band is like a tall tale to me because they were big. How big, you may be asking. On July 20th, 1979, they played to a crowd of 20,320 people at Richfield Coliseum in Cleveland. They played to over 40,000 people on New Year's Eve 1981 and New Year's Day 1982 also at the Coliseum in Cleveland. During a four-night stand in 1982, they played to a whopping 74 thousand people again i remind you this is a band perceived as a local talent some grip on the community though huh they did have three top 40 hits you may know this one
That was called He Can't Love You. You may also know this one. Again, just a real Midwestern vibe. Great working class rock. I was watching a recent interview with Michael Stanley. That's what I do when I'm bored. This is a guy who continues to write and record. And during this interview, he was asked if he ever thought about giving some of his newer songs to other artists. I wrote a song, uh, I think not for this album, I think it was the album before. And the minute I wrote it, I, I said, this is a Taylor Swift song. This would be great for Taylor Swift. This would speak to her audience, you know. This would just, this would be great. You know, and I'm a Taylor Swift fan. You know, so... As it turns out, I happen to know somebody in the band, in Taylor Swift's band. So I called him up and I said, hey, dude, I got this song I think would be great, you know, for Taylor. If I send it to you, could you, you know, slide it her way, you know? <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, I'd love to, I'd love to. He said, we're not allowed to give her any songs. You know? We're not allowed to present anything, you know, of our own, let alone anybody else's. Isn't that something? Her band is not allowed to present her with song ideas. And you would never expect to hear that because we're used to hearing things like this from Taylor Swift. We have a family. The the band, they're my best friends. Uh Uh-huh. And this. A group of people who I'm going to know for the rest of my life. And I want to know their kids. And I want to go to their weddings. She just doesn't want them to ever suggest a song that she could cover. When people bemoan the insincerity of pop music this is why and now maybe this is not all on swift maybe it is a management thing but the perception is that she is the one in the driver's seat of her career if you're just hanging out and you say taylor listen to this song you should record it you would kill it are you fined put on notice fired The bottom line is that entertainers of a certain magnitude are essentially corporations like McDonald's or or Starbucks. And corporations have a lot of rules. But artists, particularly those in rock and pop, cannot isolate themselves. It's destructive to the creative process. You need to lean on people. You need to keep learning. Keep your creative juices and your creative force alive. Isolation can damage that. Her own band... Not allowed to bring songs to her. Not allowed to make suggestions. I just, I couldn't live without them. They're my favorite people in the world. As long as they know to keep their mouths shut. Let me tell you who's legit. That Adele. My wife's been listening to this song like crazy. If you're gonna let me down, let me down gently. Don't pretend that you don't want me. I'll love you on her under the breeze. It's got single written all over it. In fact, I have read that every track on her new album, Cold 25, has received radio play. Every track. But when it comes to Adele, this isn't about singles. The new album sold 3.3 million copies in its first week. Then another million in its second week. This proves that albums 
albums are still profitable because this is historic. No album has ever sold a million copies in more than one week. That is according to Billboard. No, not even Taylor. In spite of the huge monster numbers, though, not everybody is ready to reinvest in the album philosophy. Will Smith is cutting new music right now. He told Billboard that he has a bunch of songs but doesn't know if he'll release a full album. He says he looks at his kids. They're not listening to records. They're like They like skipping around Adele he says is one of the few artists that can pull off a successful album release these days that coming from Will Smith an industry veteran what do you think are you ready for the return of the album or is that format just not as important to you is it outdated it's fans like you who are going to ultimately decide this. So be honest. You can send me an email at Sedlak Journal, S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal all squished together at gmail.com. Let me know. In the last show, I mentioned I had never been to a music festival and was somewhat ambivalent about going. Honestly, I don't care if I ever get to one, but... I got an email from Deb Fagan. And Deb, first of all, I appreciate you taking the time. She says she listens to our podcast on her afternoon dog walk. And uh, God bless you, Deborah. however you listen. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. But she said her son works for GoPro, actually, and works at a lot of music festivals. It's not just about the music, she said. And I've talked to other people since that episode aired. Uh, That seems to be a common sentiment that the vibe at a good festival, you know, it's one of those things that cannot be explained, only experienced. I feel that and I respect the standpoint. But man, you know, I think uh, think I'll hold my ground here. I, I think about my good seat that I know I'm going to get at an arena. And I think about the like-minded people around me. And I just feel like that's the way to experience a big show that you're excited about. Even general admission at shows um, like that seems to be more accommodating than what you may get at a festival. Again, that's my one-sided perception. But it is what it is. As you know, we lost Scott Weiland last week. Uh, in, you may be a huge fan of STP. If so, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. For me, STP was one of those bands that I'd been planning to get into forever. I didn't have an older brother, uh, so I didn't really grow up with the band. Um, I knew the hits, but had never heard like an album all the way through. That said, their stuff has always uh, been on my list, and I figured that once I started in with that band, I would be hooked. So for me, that was the real shame about his death. I always respected Scott's voice. Uh, he was a man who who stood alone, and it was a vibe I, I could relate to. Now, here are five songs to get you through the week and should be counted as additions to our evolving 
Stream Police playlist that will surely go down in history as the greatest playlist of all time. So you do have a role in this history-making process here. Just so many songs. And uh, if you have been uh, collecting each recommendation, uh, like I say, you've got a pretty a pretty diverse playlist by now. Uh, this week, however, first song I recommend is Fall to Pieces by Velvet Revolver. Wyland, we're going to miss you. Uh, second song is Meet Me in the City by Bruce Springsteen. If you're sick, if you're tired, if you're born, check the line, check the time, check the action, check the score. Come and give me if I ain't right. But if I am, meet me in the city tonight. And that is part of a new box set documenting the river time period. If you like uh, philosophical Bar band music, pick up that box. It's called The Ties That Bind. The third song I recommend, well, it's a classic. There Goes My Baby by The Drifters. There goes my baby Moving on down the line Wonder where, wonder where Wonder where she is bound and I'm going to give you another Drifter song where the last one was sung by Benny King. The lead vocal on this is by Rudy Lewis. He was the second lead vocalist in that group and followed King after he was thrown out of the Drifters. It's a great song about uh, sort of carving out a place of your own. It is up on the roof. Let me tell you now when I come home feeling tired and lonely, I go up where the air Fresh and sweet. And finally, Escape from the Killing Fields by Ice T. Yo, man, it sounds like you selling out to me because I'm from the ghetto, man. I'm supposed to stay in the ghetto all my life. We ain't never supposed to leave here. We black. We supposed to be poor. Shut up, do you know how dumb you sound? That mentality will keep my people down. Nobody wants to live in an urban war. You live there because your parents were poor. They live there because theirs were also. Get yourself together. Hit the gates, bro. You got to get out. You got to get out. Why? Got to get out. You got to get out. Why? Got to get out. You got to get out. Why? Because the fields are where you die. Guys, that's it. Once again, I'll leave you with the words of the great Kinky Friedman. A genius is somebody who's ahead of their time and behind on their rent. I'll see you. Thanks as always, Andy. Let me go ahead and relight my my jarm here. Especially in this little baby closet where I can't even stretch both my elbows out. I know it's a fire hazard. Stop writing me and telling me that. Right? I know it's bad for my lungs. Stop writing me and telling me that. I, I, w- I got into a discussion with my coworkers the other day. They're like, I mean, I'm like, I don't inhale. I mean, these are cigars. I'm not inhaling them. But I guess I am inhaling a ton of my own secondhand smoke. And then it turned into, well, can you get secondhand smoke from yourself? Or is that still firsthand smoke? I don't know. All right? I just know it goes into my mouth. It comes out of my mouth. And then it comes into my lungs. So... That's kind of the, the that's the, the 
the gist of the entire thing. Uh, once again, I'm Clint Davis, the uh, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. Appreciate you tuning into the Stream Police podcast. Um, and uh, definitely recommend the show to your friends and go on iTunes. Give us a nice, glowing five star review if you could. You can also subscribe on SoundCloud as well if you like to do it that way and just stream it through their app or you can download it. You can download all of our episodes for free. As always, we ask for nothing uh, in return. We just we, we enjoy doing it. It's a good time. Um, all right, let's let's uh, let's move along. I, I, as I said, I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple more mainstream movies that I saw in theaters on this movie-heavy episode of the Stream Police podcast. Two movies that are still in theaters right as of right now when I'm speaking to you. By the time you listen to this, they may be already... Uh, they, may, they may, may already be in the vault, as Disney says, or at least on Netflix. First off, let's go with the Peanuts movie, which has been in theaters for a few weeks. It was, I would call it a surprise hit. Because when this one was coming out, when they were talking about making it, I wondered, how many kids now care at all about Peanuts? I mean, seriously, Peanuts is so old. When I was a kid, Peanuts was old. Like, my grandmother loved Peanuts. But I loved it. Like, she got me really into it. I am I am a huge Peanuts fan. Like, big-time fan of the comic strip. I, the, the Christmas special is, like, one of those very few uh, things that I hold so sacred above all other, like, pieces of art that have been created um, on this planet. I mean, seriously, I, I worship that Charlie Brown Christmas special. I think it's a, I think it is a perfect little movie. Um, and I, I, the music, I mean, my God, I've got, I've got three of the soundtracks that Vince Guaraldi did from different Peanuts specials on my iPod, and I listen to them constantly. Love them. Uh, so I'm a big Peanuts fan. Always have been a big Peanuts fan. But I wonder how many kids really would care about Peanuts now. I mean, seriously, with all the, the, the Minions things and, you know, Pixar with all their movies. I mean, just all the crazy colors and crazy characters that are on TV and in movies now. Would anybody really care about this, like, kind of average group of kids in an average town um, just kind of going to school, hanging out every day? I don't know. But the Peanuts movie has been a huge hit, and I think it, it showed that people do still care about this brand long after even Charles Schultz, the guy who created the uh, the series, is is unfortunately gone. So Peanuts movie was directed by Steve Martino, written by Brian and Craig Schultz. They're the son and grandson of Chuck Schultz, and uh, also written by Cornelius Uliano, starring the voice talents of young Noah Schnapp, Hadley Miller, Mariel Sheets, Alex Garfin, and the late, great Bill Melendez. They brought his voice back out of the cans, even though he's been dead since 2008. Um, he did the voice of Snoopy and Woodstock back in the old cartoons, and they brought his voice back out and used him again in this movie, and I thought that was a nice touch. And it, it just goes along with really what the, this movie has got an old soul on it. You just don't see cartoons, specifically kids' cartoons, because, you know, nowadays there are a lot of adult cartoons as there are kids' cartoons. I'm not talking about, like, the, I'm not talking about like adult cartoons, the ones you have to like buy in a brown paper bag, uh, as if anyone does that anymore. But I'm talking about like cartoons that are aimed more at adult audiences. But you just you don't see kids' movies with this much heart and soul. I feel like everything that is like kids' movies are so formulaic and so by the books, and they're so loud and obnoxious and in your face. This one had so much damn heart and soul. I loved it. None of the writers had ever written a film before, which is crazy. None of them had ever written a, a full-length film. And maybe that's why the risks that they took in this movie worked so well, because they weren't, they weren't trying to do something that they had done before that had been successful. In the Peanuts movie, time just sort of like passes by quickly. 
in the film. Like we go through we go through an entire school year in the course of this movie, and you wouldn't even really realize it. It just the time just kind of passes. There are sequences of like very little to no dialogue intercut in between the main storyline points, staying true to kind of some of the old Charlie Brown cartoons. Um, how they used to do them. And Schultz's archival animation is even brought into play as well. Things that I loved about this movie. Um, this is the first Peanuts I've seen, you know, as I said, I don't think I've seen every Peanuts special, but I've seen a lot of them. And the Red Baron, like the the parts where Snoopy is flying on his doghouse and imagining that he's fighting the World War I uh, uh, fighter pilot, the Red Baron, those parts always bored me just to tears. Like, I, I just never liked those parts. I always wanted to skip them. I always felt like they were just filler. They didn't really look that good. They weren't that exciting. But I'm going to tell you what. I loved them in the Peanuts movie. They looked great. Like, the animation in the movie looked good already. But when they go to these Red Baron scenes and you've got this camera shot right behind Snoopy on his doghouse flying through the air, um, I mean, it looked real. It looked like like we had strapped a camera onto the back of, like, an F, F-16 jet or something. And we're going for a test flight. I mean, it was really, really cool. Um, and and the action, those action scenes were really well done, and they were exciting, and they made sense. They made them actually make sense in the course of the film. The movie, all the movie is about is Charlie Brown and his affections toward this new girl, um, the, the little girl with red hair, basically, uh, who is nameless through the entire film. She's just, Charlie Brown is pining over her the entire movie. Um, and you wonder, is he ever going to talk to her? Is he just going to keep tripping on his own feet as he always does? Um, and that's really, that's all the movie is about. That's that's the entire story. That's one of the things I think was so refreshing about this. This movie was not about, like, Charlie Brown and his buddies going out on some big adventure, getting caught in some mortally perilous situation, as you would think that it probably would be in a kid's movie. It's just all this movie is about is, like, self-doubt. And the real things that can kind of trip a kid up, a little kid during everyday life at school and at home. Because you remember being a kid. It was hard. I mean, you've never done anything before. You've never been on your own before, even just for a couple hours at school, you know, just with with no support system around you and and just in this room with these strangers who you're going to know for the next 12 years, and you better make friends with them because otherwise it's going to be hell for the next 12 years. There's a lot of pressure on being a little kid. And there's a lot of pressure on even little Charlie Brown, and he is feeling it. And he's sitting down talking to Lucy at her little five-cent psychiatrist uh, booth, and she gives him some actually some very good advice. And, um, I, I mean, it, it's it's a movie really about, like, discovering what is great about yourself and what about you makes you unique. And I just thought that was such a, a, a great message for kids to see, really. I wouldn't say that the Peanuts movie is very good for, like, very small kids, because there's not a whole lot going on in it, but it is very good for kids that are around, I don't know, like 8, 9, 10 years old, just kind of getting out there in school and, and trying to figure themselves out. That's really who this movie is so great for. It's just a great message kind of about learning about yourself and, and being you know, more confident in yourself. Because we know if you know anything about Charlie Brown, you know he's like the least confident guy ever. And Charlie Brown actually gets some stones by the end of this movie, and it's cool. Um, it, it's not the funniest cartoon movie ever. Uh, but it's it's got a couple of just the sweetest scenes that I can really remember watching in a long time. But, you know, I didn't laugh my ass off while I was watching the Charlie Brown movie, but it wasn't really like that. You know, it was certainly a comedy and it was lighthearted, but it was also just very – it came from a real place, and that's what I liked about it. I The main thing I'll say about the Peanuts movie is that it, it was a movie that had class, a lot of class, especially for a kid's movie. And it doesn't talk down 
to the children that it's entertaining. I mean, when we're when we were going to see this movie, we saw trailers for like four other kids' movies before the Peanuts film. And these trailers were so obnoxious. You've got these characters with these annoying, grating voices, and they're, like, farting. Like, every one of the trailers had, like, one of the characters had to stop and fart. Like, oh, the music stopped. And everyone in the – and all the kids in the theater are, like, cracking up because this, this little muskrat guy or whatever farted in, like, his buddy's face. And, I mean, like, I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. Like, all four of the movies we saw trailers for had that scene in them. They had, like, this loud, obnoxious rock and roll music and stuff kind of used ironically and just, just – Again, talking down to kids, and this one was not like that. This movie had so much class uh, that you as an adult can enjoy it, and, and for the kid, it's it's entertaining, and it tells a meaningful story, and it's just well done. I, I, I really applaud them for sticking with Charles Schultz's vision. Uh, I guess that helps when you have his son and his grandson write the thing to stick with what was so important to him and what stories he wanted to tell uh, because they, they really stuck to it, and it had the spirit of the old Peanuts movies but it looked so modern and so good and i just i liked everything about the peanuts movie i thought they they really did nail it so bravo to everybody uh, behind this one and uh, certainly recommend checking out the peanuts movie especially if you've got kids that are about that age and if you love peanuts and you were worried about it being this raucous and and if you remember a few episodes ago a while ago actually a couple months ago i talked about the peanuts movie and how i was worried it was going to be this cookie cutter piece of crap movie after that megan trainer interview where she sounded like a moron who didn't know anything about the series but she was like the ambassador for the film all those worries went away as soon as uh you know i got about a half hour into the movie and realized that this is pretty good this thing's got a lot of heart and soul so bravo to them uh, on the peanuts movie loved it I can't believe I'm about to talk to the little red-haired girl. It's moments like this when you need your faithful friend. Ah! Yep, <laughs> if there's one person you want by your side at a moment like this, it's your loyal dog. All right, one final movie to talk about that is in theaters right now that I saw since the last time we spoke. The final film in the Hunger Games saga, the four-film Hunger Games series um, that has really been uh, entertaining me for the last four years. Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2, directed by Francis Lawrence. He's the guy that directed the last three. He did Catching Fire and both of the Mockingjay movies. And the screenplay was by Danny Strong, who's the co-creator of Empire, and he used to act a little bit on uh, Gilmore Girls back in the day, if you can believe that. And uh, also co-written by Peter uh, Peter Craig. These two both uh, co-wrote the last two Mockingjay, the, the last uh, two Hunger Games movies, I should say. Uh, it starred Jennifer Lawrence, Josh Hutcherson, Woody Harrelson, Julianne Moore, and Liam's, Liam Hemsworth, the usual cast of characters back together for Mockingjay Part 2. I felt like this was a closing act that was much more entertaining than the film that came before it. I didn't like Mockingjay Part 1 much at all. I mean, I, I liked uh, its its message, and I thought it was so stark, and I admired them for kind of going as stark as they did with the vision of that movie because I think it is such a dirty world and such a, such a, a scary world that the Hunger Games takes place in, just a true dystopia. But... After as entertaining and like as fun to look at and just marvelous production set pieces and everything as the first two movies were, I felt like the third one, it was 
to me, just disappointing because I was expecting this feast for the eyes again, but it wasn't that movie. So Mockingjay Part 2, maybe I knew what to expect more going in, but I just thought it was a better movie in a lot of ways than than uh, Part 1 of, of Mockingjay. Maybe the two together would be better to watch now. But uh, as I said, much more entertaining than Part 1. It was jarring, i got to say, man, in the first couple of scenes to see Philip Seymour Hoffman on the big screen again because I'd forgotten that they filmed the final two movies at the same time. I thought maybe he would, like his last movie was the first one, but no. The movie opens up, there's Philip Seymour Hoffman on my on the screen right in front of me. The guy's been dead for nearly 2 years now if you can believe that. And you know, it just like like I said, it just kind of it just kind of shocked me. Um and everything comes to a close in this movie. They really do tie everything up um in a nice little bow. Um and you know, really, acting-wise, it was consistent with all the other ones. Uh, Action-wise, it was more intense, I would say, than any of the other Hunger Games movies. There was specifically one sequence that was, like, scary. I mean, it's, like, actually scared me um, in one sequence, and that doesn't happen to me very often. But um, just some creepy stuff that was almost turned it into, like, a zombie movie for a minute. You'll know what I'm talking about if you saw the movie or if you read the books. Um, but, yeah, they've got some scary stuff in here. Not A lot of it doesn't make sense logically. Like, it, it kept taking me out of the film. Like all these traps that uh, the the people in the capital had set up, basically to kill um, to kill the rebels who were coming in to try to invade the capital and take it over, uh, and and free all the people of Pan Am, which is the world that this movie uh, series takes place in. I kept getting taken out of that. Like I'm like, yeah, they're not gonna put like bombs underneath the parking lot or like these spikes underneath the roads and stuff like that. It just doesn't. I mean, when the hell did they did they do that when they first built the city? Like in anticipation of this, or did they tear all the roads up, then build the spikes down, then repave them? I don't know. So I kept getting taken out by things like that. But I liked the movie much more, and I felt like it flowed very well. It was paced very well. It didn't drag at all. Every scene was just kind of concise to the point, and the action sequences were exciting and intense and and pretty scary, as I said. So I wonder what the legacy, though, of the Hunger Games film series will be, and I I wonder what you think about this. I mean, where do you kind of rank that series with other series? And I'm not just talking about teen series. I'm talking about all of them. I'm talking Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Harry Potter, all the great films, Lord of the Rings. Where do you put The Hunger Games? Is it in the conversation of the great sagas ever, or is it one of those that we're going to forget about? Now, I'll give you my take. I, I feel like after Harry Potter took off, as a series of these like acclaimed and very popular films, the floodgates were open for series like this. You had Divergent, which is still going on, The Maze Runner, the Twilight Saga was going on. They all found their audiences. All three of those have found audiences. But Hunger Games was like the only one to me that felt like serious filmmaking and also going after this audience of kids who read these books um, and drew them into the theaters. It got teenagers going to the movies, which I'm always a fan of. But it, it was serious filmmaking. These were not dumb movies. Again, these movies were cast almost perfectly from top to bottom. That's another thing that the Harry Potter movies, they nailed, and they got lucky in some ways, but they really nailed the casting. The casting here wasn't quite as good as Harry Potter because I do feel like Josh Hutcherson and Liam Hemsworth were kind of just also rands. Like, they were just boring to me, both of them. Um, kind of Hemsworth is like was like a piece of cardboard, uh, a chiseled piece of cardboard, but Hutcherson was like just this... I don't know, just like a weenie. And I guess he's supposed to be a weenie, but I I didn't think he really acted it that well. He probably did his best acting in the series in this last movie. I will say that. But I, I still just, at times, I didn't, I didn't really connect with him. Uh, but especially, I mean, Jennifer Lawrence, they nailed the casting of her. She was already a great actress before they cast her, really. But 
they nailed getting her in these. Donald Sutherland was amazing as the villain over the whole thing, and he was fantastic in this last movie. And Woody Harrelson was great casting again. But compared to Harry Potter, I'd call this series a massive bummer, really, as a story. There are tons of pretty colors in parts one and two, but then the idea of the films is so ruthless, getting these kids pitting against each other, fighting to the death to feed the the people in the district that they live in. I mean, it's this brutal idea. As the films went on, more and more the color was stripped away until basically, really, the last two, the Mockingjay movies, I felt like, were war films. I mean, these are like teenage war movies. Uh, They did dystopia well in this series, but I'm going to say I'll be shocked if people are still watching the Hunger Games movies with a lot of excitement in like 10 years from now. I just don't know. I don't think it has the kind of legs uh, again, because the subject matter is such a downer and the movies are so gloomy at the end of the day, I just don't think that uh, it, it's going to live up there with like the Harry Potters and the Lord of the Rings uh, uh, trilogies. I just I don't put it there in the great series of all time, but I really did enjoy. I mean, I, I thought I think all four of them were good films. Um, I didn't hate any of them, and I loved parts one and two. I mean, I'm going to tell you, I loved The Hunger Games parts one and two. I thought I thought they were fantastic, two of my favorite action movies ever. Um, and, and this closer was a fine closer. So I think they can be, definitely be proud. Lionsgate and everybody who worked on these can be proud of the, of the Hunger Games films. Susan Collins can feel good about uh, these adaptations. But I just don't think they're going to live like the Harry Potter series or any of these really, the truly great series will live on. I just, I don't see them doing that. You should get some rest. You're still trying to protect me. Real or not real? Real. That's what you and I do. Keep each other alive. All right, one final note before I cut you loose here on the uh, Stream Police podcast. I want to mention Scream Queens on Fox. Um, that show is about to come to an end, and I've been watching it from the beginning. My uh, wife and my mother, we've all kind of been watching it together. It's been like our weekly thing. And I got to say, you know, I was really enjoying it at first, but now I feel like the joke's like worn thin. And they just didn't have nearly enough story to stretch to 13 episodes for this first season. Um, I'd like to see the show come back and maybe get it like a shorter order or just kind of retool some things, but I, I just don't think as a first season, 13 episodes, it was too long. It's It's been too long. Uh, this one should have been eight to ten shows, I feel like, and that would have really tightened things up. That would have been plenty because the humor and the characters on the show are so one-note uh, that they really just get old. And some episodes, nothing happens, literally. Like nothing has happened in a couple episodes of Scream Queens this first season. I really thought that they were going to be like killing characters each episode, but pretty much the entire cast is still alive and we're nearly done. Like the only characters they kill are like the the most disposable people. I don't even remember their names after the show like just ended. Um, I appreciate the idea of a campy like horror anthology as an answer to American Horror Story and how serious that series is, but maybe go away from a tired premise like the bitchy, vapid sorority house, because I I do feel like that's an old, tired premise that's not really accurate, and I think that if the show were set kind of maybe like in a summer camp or something like that for a season, it could be even funnier, it could still be young, it could still attract a young audience, and it would be more frightening, really, at the end of the day, so, because just a lot of the humor in Scream Queens comes off as so hateful um, and and so uh, antagonistic that it it kind of can turn you off big time uh, uh, from the show. And it's just, it goes for the jugular a lot of times and it, it doesn't always land, but yeah, I just feel like if they had tightened things up this season, that the show would have been really great. It's been 
pretty good, not great, but uh, hopefully they'll be, uh, I don't know if it's coming back for a second season, but I'll tune in for a second season if we find out. Uh, maybe it'll be a shorter run and find out what the new premise will be. All right, that's going to do it for the Stream Police podcast, uh, episode 17 here. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. Next time we'll talk Star Wars, we'll talk uh, Marvel's Jessica Jones, and maybe a little Master of None as well, and whatever else comes out in theaters and uh, happen to get around and see. For now, I'll uh, urge you to go over to OverdueReview.com, check out my movies and uh, TV reviews, and also check out Andy's uh, album reviews as well. We've got some year-end stuff that's going to be coming here in the next couple weeks as well. Thank you guys very much for listening. Tell your friends and follow us on Twitter at overdue underscore review. Uh, and email me anytime at theclintdavis at gmail.com. I'll talk to you guys next time. Be careful out there. The Stream Police Podcast is a production of OverdueReview.com. Since 2013, the staff at Overdue Review have written thoughtful, unpretentious opinions on hundreds of movies, TV shows, and music from every era. Overdue Review, better late. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.